0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan.
1: And I'm Gavin Cooper.
0: Well, this is our last episode now of the second season. Yeah, so this has been a good series. We're coming to the end now. <laughs> <laughs> season.
1: <laughs> Come on, sell it. Good series. So that's this has been is, the best.
0: Is it. So yes. this. This has been uh, it's definitely
1: the most recent.
0: Yeah, I think this series we've looked into um, different areas, not just specifically haematology, so yeah. the world of immunology, the digital world, so looking at um, informatics at the trust and different ways we're using digital records and asepsis as well, where that started and how important that is. So still, again, focusing on our haematology, but um, definitely branching out and hearing from you know, some fantastic uh, senior nurses as well, which has been great. I enjoyed what I learned about T-cells and about the thymus score.
2: That was really interesting. Yeah. And the last episode, the one that's coming up now, where we talk to Mervyn Singer. Really great to get some questions from some of the ward doctors that we, that we posed to him and get some interesting answers back. That was really good. And learn a little bit more about our chief exec um, and coagulation. That was really good.
1: Yeah, I really liked that episode. Uh, I think we covered a couple really big... Haematology disorders in this series, so multiple myeloma and ALL, and those both were, I think, really interesting episodes.
2: Looking forward to season
1: three. Yeah, we've got season three pretty much recorded now. So, with, I don't know, should we say?
2: One of our consultants is returning to season three. So Will Townsend's doing a podcast with one of our ITU consultants.
1: So Vanya Gantt is doing a, has done an episode on microbiology and basics of antibiotic use, bacterial growth, the history of bacteria, where it comes from, how we live with it, and antimicrobial resistance as well as a growing problem. So that one's gonna be great.
0: Yeah. So lots to look forward to. um, we looked into as well, particularly transplanting those patients and the challenges with that, which I found very interesting. Yeah. We're gonna see a lot more of those patients now at UCLH.
1: And then also we just recently recorded one with uh, Malika Sekar about the use of blood transfusions and blood products as a means of facilitating hematological treatments and just a lot of the sort of science and biology behind it.
0: Yeah, particularly I think for younger, kind of junior nurses now, we've had a basic kind of blood transfusion, how it started, and the safety um, around that would be really beneficial for them. They're quite excited to listen to that one. Mm. But also... It's quite in depth also about the antigens and
1: 24 different blood groups blood classification systems I yeah. have no idea about that yeah this podcast is with Mervin Singer who's a professor at UCLH in intensive care and he's talking about his area of world-renowned specialty sepsis
2: so hello, Mervin. Thank you for coming today and joining you're very us welcome. Pleasure. Um, to discuss sepsis. Uh, we're really excited about talking to you about this. I know you've got a, a lot of research that you've done this, and you're actually an intensive care doctor here as well. Mm-hmm. So just firstly, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and why the interest in sepsis and um, why working in ITU to start with?
3: Lovely. Thank you. I'm a consultant in intensive care, and uh, the other hat I wear I, I'm... Uh, a clinical academic, so I, I'm a professor of intensive care in the medical school, and I suppose I got into infection and sepsis because it's a big problem in intensive care patients. I like puzzles and it's always puzzled me as to why an infected patient develops organ dysfunction, both from a mechanistic point of view and then how do we identify it, how mm-hmm. do we best treat it, and so a lot of my research going from the lab into patient studies has been trying to better understand the pathophysiology and can we improve on the way we identify and treat these people. I suppose I've got a few other hats. I was the co-chair of the Sepsis 3. There's a sort of international task force that uh, redefines sepsis to try and improve on standardization of uh, terminology because sepsis is banded around a lot too frequently. Eurosepsis, septic toe, This patient has septicemia. So we want to try and get away from all of these
2: loose terms. Like a more common language to be used. Absolutely.
3: So we all talk exactly identical language, and we're more consistent. And that will hopefully spill over into when we look at the incidence of sepsis and mortality rates. If we use the same criteria, we can talk the same language.
2: And did the sepsis three? Did that come from something else? Is that from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign? No, no that's
3: separate. Yeah. So basically, it's been run by the European and the U.S. Society of Critical Care Medicine. But you have a broad church of infectious disease doctors, intensive care doctors, respiratory docs, surgeons, etc. And so they have a task force, and the previous one. I call it sepsis 2, was in 2001, and they thought it was about time for a redo, so I was asked to lead on it as the co-chair. So we spent two years putting it all together, (laughs) and I think an advantage we had was big data became available, so we could actually validate our criteria that we used to describe sepsis and septic shock against hundreds of thousands of patients with infection. Okay.
2: And was this just in this country or is
3: that? No, it's global. So most of the big data at the time came from the US because they have these electronic healthcare systems like Epic, Cerner, which have only just recently come into the UK. You know, UCH is one of the first to have Epic, for example. And so we could tap into predominantly American patient databases, but there were some European and other ones we used.
1: And I guess the big thing that changed with the new sepsis definitions was the kind of the move away from SERS and this sort of inflammatory model. And yeah. did you kind of expect that to happen or did that just come
3: about because of you oh, no, sort of well, looking okay. at the data? That was the intention. That was the intention okay. because the, the problem is you and I have a cold. Mm-hmm. We have a temperature. Oh, that's a SIRS criterion. Uh, we might have a raised white count. Oh, that's a SERS criterion. So by the old definition, that was sepsis. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I have a cold, so you don't need to rush and do things for me just because I've got a cold with a temperature and a white count. And inflammation is part and parcel of the the body's normal response to any infection, trauma, surgery, whatever. And so it became conflated in people's minds that, you've got a temperature, you must be really ill, when the reality is that we're hugely, hugely good at dealing with infection. You know, the figure I cite here is that in England, I think there are about 55, 56 million people. GPs give out 34 million antibiotic prescriptions a year. And obviously some of those might be for acne. Some of those might be for viral infections, which the antibiotic isn't going to work on that well, if at all. But only a minority of these patients actually end up coming to hospital. And if you look again, it's a bit conflated, but if you look at NHS England data, it's about 1.7 million patients are admitted with a suspicion of sepsis, and probably 20 to 40 percent of those don't actually have an infection. And of those patients, only about 40,000 get admitted to an intensive care unit, of whom about 15,000 die. So it's a tiny minority hmm. that get infection, that need an antibiotic, that come into hospital, that are appropriate for an int- intensive care bed because many people are at the end of their life. Mm. They're frail, they have significant comorbidities, and perhaps the infection's the last nail in that coffin on their dying pathway. And so by and large, and I think thankfully the UK, we're resourced well enough that if you need an intensive care bed and it's appropriate, then you know those patients are often admitted. So the vast majority of patients who come to intensive care are those we feel, okay, there's a chance that we can offer something, even though many of them may have significant underlying morbidity and mortality risk.
2: So is it identifying patients that are actually would potentially go on to develop septic shock? Is that
3: a yeah. part or, of it? Or any organ dysfunction. So they may need ventilation, they may need renal replacement therapy. That They may need, again, the new criteria for septic shock is despite fluid, you still have a high lactate mm. above two and a low blood pressure needing vasopressors. So it might be for treating shock, but it might be just to support their organs that are failing, the lung, the kidney, etc.
1: It must be very difficult to unpick, but apart from maybe the pathogen, what else influences whether a patient goes on to develop sepsis Uh, or whether they don't? Just answer that in
3: 10 words, please. (laughs) Um, If I knew the answer to that, uh, I'd get the Nobel Prize next year. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Slightly <laughs> embellish on that um, short answer. Um, we don't know. Clearly, there are probably some genetic factors. If your parents died of infection, it's more likely that you will die of infection or get sepsis. However, the vast majority of cases of sepsis, again, looking at NHS England data, more than 60% of patients who develop sepsis are in an elderly population, and more than three quarters of those dying are over 75 years of age. So if it was an inbuilt genetic problem or predisposition, Mm. then you'd expect lots of children to have it, Mm. or young people. So by and large, it's a disease of the elderly and just unfortunately a fact of life that as you get older, even in healthy people, your immune function does deteriorate. So there are probably some inbuilt risk factors, but then there's lots of other pathological factors, many of which we don't understand. And I think perhaps it's a case of like the perfect storm, three or four of these things all come together at the same time. You know, you've had chemotherapy and that apart from wiping out your immune system, has other effects. It keeps you in bed, you're not mobile, you're not coughing well, you're predisposed to get infections. You've got lines, tubes, drains in, that predisposes you. So I think it's a coming together of a whole variety of factors. Again, we don't know why some people get it bad and other people laugh it off. Hmm. You can, you know, take a whole room of people, inject them with an identical amount of bacteria, and some will be a little bit miserable and other people will be really ill. But it's the same bug and the same dose
2: and how quickly something's acted on. We talk about how mm. how important it is to, you know, identify sepsis really yeah. quickly and then blood culture someone and screen someone mm. and then start antibiotics. So is that still the case that you know the quicker that we get yeah. the antibiotics into a patient the better they do?
3: There's a lot of uh, religion propaganda dogma surrounding that and there's this mantra that you know every hour of delay kills people. However, if you actually look at the data that's not actually substantiated. So that piece of religion comes from essentially retrospective analyses of databases often collected for other reasons, often with quite heavy statistical adjustments so the crude mortality doesn't show an impact whereas the adjusted mortality does. And every prospective trial that's looked at the impact of early a- antibiotics, and there's one randomized trial, pre-hospital antibiotics versus wait till they get to the emergency department, there are quality improvement programs, there's before-after studies, have failed to show a dramatic or any impact on giving it in the first hour. So. Please don't go away with a message that, oh, we don't need to worry about these patients. We have to take it seriously. But I would make it context specific. If you've got a really sick patient in front of you, you need to respond and react promptly. If you've got a patient who's got a bit of a temperature and they're a little bit unwell, you've got a little bit more time to think, well, do they have infection? Should I treat them with an antibiotic? And I think now, especially with an increasing availability of molecular diagnostics and other things, we can hopefully make more of a reasoned decision as to whether we need to rush in or mm-hmm. not. I think one of the, the big problems with hemoncology patients is they've got lots and lots and lots of reasons to have a temperature. Yeah. You know, graft yeah. versus host, drug reactions. Mucositis. All of these things, you know, and toxicities
2: from new therapies and immune therapies.
3: Mm, Absolutely. So, you know, how many of those actually have a bacterial infection? How many have a fungal infection? It's often, oh, there are fluffy shadows on a CT scan. We cannot exclude fungal infection. So they get an antifungal because of the fear of not treating it just in case. And so the yield in terms of microbiology positivity, is very, very low in these patients. And now we're finding, because viral testing is becoming more common, we're finding a lot of these patients actually have an adenovirus or a metaneumovirus or something, which obviously isn't going to respond to an antibacterial. So I think the challenge is obviously to jump appropriately, Mm. ideally rule out the patients who don't have a bacterial infection, because antibiotics aren't good for you. The okay. toxicity related to antibiotics is huge. And apart from the obvious, oh, they've got a rash or an anaphylactic reaction or they vomit or get diarrhoea or C. diff, there's increasingly a huge splurge of data out there about the risks of antibiotics. I'll give you a nice example, if I may. Please. Uh, <laughs> checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Yep. So I know it's more oncology than heme oncology at the mm. moment, but I think there are some uses in heme oncology. But there, are, there was a very nice study from France, and recently the Marsden published the uh, data. But if you get antibiotics before... It's a month, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, with the checkpoint inhibitor, your survival is considerably reduced if you give them an antibiotic. And many of these patients just had oral antibiotics from their GPs. And the reason why, well, we know antibiotics very rapidly affect what's called the microbiome. So your normal body flora. And so we have microbiomes, well, certainly it was initially discovered, obviously known about in the gut, the mouth, the skin, the chest. But it's also now being described in the liver, in the kidney. In fact, there are more non-human cells in and on our body than there are human cells approximately oh, by weight, somewhere between 7 to 10 kilos of our body are non-human cells, bacterial, viral, etc. And we live in perfect harmony when we're healthy with these bugs and they actually contribute to good health. And then we wade in with an antibiotic. That wipes them all out. wipes them out. And you then get recolonized with basically predominantly one strain and often, especially in a hospital, it's a resistant strain. And then, apart from that resistant strain taking hold, you also wipe out good bacteria. So, with this checkpoint inhibitor story, they found a bug called Accomansiae mucinophilia, if I remember (laughs) right, which I've never heard of before. Falls
2: off the tongue. (laughs) Exactly.
3: I had to memorise that in front of the mirror. But they found that... and they took it from humans to a mouse tumour model and found that if you took out this bug from the gut of these animals, the response to a checkpoint inhibitor and reducing tumour size and the survival of the, the mice was way, way, way reduced. And when they put the bug back, there was an improvement in mortality.
2: I suppose as well, when we're, we're looking for bugs and when we blood culture, we then immediately hit them with a load mm-hmm. of antibiotics. And I know we, we always say we never really find sources for infections. If we didn't treat straight away with antibiotics and recultured mm-hmm. later and later, we're more likely to find something more targeted.
3: Ooh, um, the answer is probably not for that. Um, again, well, I'll give you a, a, a little quiz. Um, <laughs> oh, no. So you you have... <laughs> ignore your neutropenic patient but you have approximately four to seven million white cells in a mill of your blood when you have a bacteremia how many bugs do you have in that mill of blood on average
1: (laughs) (laughs) i haven't got a clue so you've got
3: four to seven million white cells all looking for those bugs how many uh bugs when you have a bacteremia
2: i have no idea
1: I'm going to say small, a small amount. Bill, oh, give me a number then. Okay,
3: 20,000. 20, 20,000? Higher? Lower? Higher. Lower. It's... 5,000? It's about 1 to 10.
2: Okay.
3: Period. Well, oh, well, 1 to okay. 10. 1 to 10. And if you've got something like an endocarditis, mm. where it's actually the infections in the bloodstream, you might get into the hundreds or maybe sometimes a, a thousand or a few thousand per mil. hmm but that's why it takes the lab one, two, three days to yeah. grow because you've got to wait for the doubling time of the bacteria to double, 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 double before it can be identified. When you brush your teeth, 20% of people have a bacteremia transiently. When you have you know, dental surgery, same.
2: And that's why there's a higher risk when you have dental surgery of developing other more serious...
3: Well, interestingly, like again... Like endocarditis. Well, but now, you, you know, again, there's a big argument, do you need antibiotics? Because, um, again, that's been looked at. And you have this showering of bugs that are known to cause infective endocarditis, yet very few patients, even if they don't have antibiotics, who have got a leaky valve or a valve, mm. you know, prosthetic valve, develop endocarditis. So the body's really good at dealing with infection. But again, we're conditioned to think, oh, we've got to jump in with an antibiotic. And so clearly, I'm being a little bit provocative, (laughs) a bit blasphemous, you know, against the mantra, oh, we've got to jump quickly on every febrile neutropenic because that's what the guideline says. However, you know, has that been properly tested? And so I'm being challenging
2: there's a big difference between seeing a patient that has a neutropenic spike and is quite well with a neutropenic spike,
3: Absolutely. between Absolutely. seeing
2: a patient that very clearly unwell and the difference between giving them an antibiotic yeah. and then a couple of hours later seeing how yeah. well they are, then yeah. you know that the antibiotic's working. Yeah. But I can understand an unwell neutropenic spike and a patient that is showing signs of not being underwell mm. and the difference the antibiotic yeah. makes.
1: Completely agree.
2: But and- you, but you wouldn't say, well, no, I'm not going to give to that person, or
1: or do do you think we have the information we need to start differentiating between this this broad population and go, oh, these guys clearly look well with this with yeah. this data, and these guys, oh yeah, everyone else, therefore yeah. we should treat, but these guys we can safely leave out. Do you think there's bedside well, what we would need to start? I, I doing think that? I can't
3: put my hand at my heart and say safe because it's not been tested. Sure, you know, but again, the data and. To be fair, it's not look, been looked at specifically with a hemoncology population. And so the fear is, oh, they've got no neutrophils, we need to jump in. Mm-hmm. However, if you look at the general population out there, the evidence that every hour counts isn't there. And so, yes, intuitively, you've got somebody who's really sick or deteriorating at a rate of knots, then I think it's reasonable to jump in quickly. You know, my analogy is when somebody's bleeding to death, you'll get the own egg blood. But if they're not bleeding to death, but they're, they've are they got a hemoglobin of five and they're otherwise stable, you've got a bit more time to do a cross match and do things in a more considered fashion. So mm. I would argue that, you know, perhaps in those who are really ill, it's appropriate to jump. Perhaps we can be a bit more circumspect. And again, we don't know. It's a question I pose to my hemocology colleagues. Do we know the harm the antibiotics are doing to our patients? Mm. And we often see patients who are febrile, liver function goes off badly, renal function goes off, and you can sometimes actually hone Mm. down on the antibiotic as the problem.
2: So it's quite difficult, isn't it, really?
3: And we don't know the covert harm of what we're doing. You know, as I mentioned, wiping out the microbiome. And so we don't know the consequences, which we can't measure, we don't see at the end of the bed, but are probably actually very real. And I'm ignoring all the resistance issues, you know, because if you just keep wading in with antibiotics, you will get resistance.
2: I suppose that's a really big concern and a really big fear about the antibiotic resistant, particularly patients that, especially with our types of patients that are so unwell.
1: Yeah, the the fear that you couldn't actually do the the sort of treatments we do without having
3: antibiotics that will work when you need them to. Yeah. And the problem is, if you use stroke abuse antibiotics when the patient doesn't need them, you run out of options. Yeah. And in the UK, resistance rates, especially to gram negatives, are climbing year by year. Thankfully, we're nowhere near the region the levels in Southern Europe or in the United States or mm-hmm. India, China, Japan. But they are getting worse. Yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, you need a few options. And if you if we abuse uh, our antibiotics we'll run out of options. So it's that balancing act of hopefully picking the right patient to treat. Mm -hmm. I think there's a move to try and move away from broad spectrum to narrow spectrum. But again, wouldn't it be nice if we had the quick diagnostics to tell us, yes, this patient has a bacteria. Yes, it's an E. coli. Yes, it's resistant or sensitive to antibiotic X or Y. Wouldn't that be the ideal scenario? (laughs) And. You know, I'm hopeful within 5, 10, 15 years we'll get there. But at the moment, we've got to rely on uh, waiting a few days for a lab that often grows nothing. You know, if you look in overall in UCLH, um, only 11% of blood cultures grow something. Now, presumably people took blood cultures because they were worried the patient had an infection. Some of these patients may already be on an antibiotic, which may prevent the Mm. bug growing. Mm. But again, going back to my point earlier about... You've only got 1 to 10 per mil. You may miss the bacteria if you happen to take your 10 mils blood sample or whatever. You know, you might miss them.
2: And you'd need to treat by that point presumably yeah. because yeah. the patient's unwell. Yeah.
3: And then the problem is, you know, everyone talks about antibiotic stewardship. And how long do you need a course of antibiotics for?
2: depending on the patient's symptoms that's in front of you
3: ah well but then that's not the way we generally do it i agree with you but you know but if you look you know it's oh let's give them a week
2: should you give them a decent so is it completing a course of antibiotics that's better than is it i don't know probably not
3: (laughs) again that was the stuff that gps were taught to tell their patients you know even though you're feeling perfectly well finish this week's course But now people are moving away from that because they've realized, actually, that's a load of rubbish. You know, my personal view, and same with intensive care patients, that unless there's a deep-seated infection, like an abscess or an osteomyelitis or an endocarditis or a specific bug like TB or something where you need to keep going for longer, most of the time, you know, we give four or five days treatment and then stop. And if they haven't got better within a few days, then do they actually have an infection? Or have you missed an abscess or a collection somewhere that needs a radiological drainage or a surgical drainage? So if you're going to see a response, most bugs should respond pretty quickly. And again, there's a lot of literature now. You know, if urinary tract infection, you know, one dose of an antibiotic is all you need. There's even years ago a trial from a clinic in Niger of treating meningococcal meningitis. And they found very good outcomes with one dose of antibiotic.
2: I certainly think we see that more on the wards. You know, if we have a spike in a patient's well, maybe three days or so, Mm. four days, and then we'll stop and Mm. see how they are. And, you know, sometimes they do re-spike and we do reculture and start again. But I see less of people being on it for a long time when they're quite well.
3: Mm. Which is important. I think we could be better. You know, so just because they have one spike, does that mean automatically they should be given an antibiotic? I'm not a hemoncologist oncologist and I know that there'll be a lot of paranoia. Oh, no, we have to do it. That's our teaching. It's, you know, we'll be uh, sued or litigated against, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, all put all of those things aside and just say, does it actually make a difference? I think it's a really important question to try and address. There's not the political, medical, legal climate that most people will want to expose themselves to. But I think my guess is probably the patient with the occasional spike in temperature, but they're otherwise well. You know, how many of them actually need an antibiotic? Certainly on the ICU, we don't jump in with an antibiotic. We might think, is there a line that needs to be taken out? or oh, let's just watch these patients and see what evolves.
2: So it's close monitoring of that patient, yeah. being aware that there's a potential.
3: Absolutely. And news scoring. Yeah. You know, I'm a big believer in news scoring. I think, again, from my perspective, I'm very against having sort of sepsis teams and sepsis-specific scores because at the end of the day, I want to know about a patient who's deteriorating for any reason and then you get the appropriate healthcare practitioner to come and see them at the, the right time and then work out, could it be infection? Could it be a pulmonary embolus? Could it be a bleed, heart failure, whatever, and then appropriately treat. But you know, I think the danger with overemphasizing sepsis is that sometimes you stop thinking about other conditions. I mean, in terms of um, detecting sepsis at the bedside, Mm. quick
1: SOFA. Do we use that at UCLH? Because I feel like we typically just the totals we use are the NEWS score. Is that is that intentional?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So quick SOFA. When we did these sepsis three guidelines, we gave definition and criteria for sepsis so these were patients with a change in their SOFA score which is an organ dysfunction score increasing by two or more with this acute episode of suspected infection but those are things we routinely measure with you know clinical markers or blood tests like platelets etc and urea creatinine as markers of renal dysfunction. The quick SOFA was to offer help and aid for wards, emergency departments, whatever, just to identify patients with a suspected infection who are at bigger risk of doing badly, needing to go to an ICU or dying. And again, looking at big data, hundreds of thousands of patients, the three that came out tops were any change in Glasgow coma score. So that can include confusion, going down to you know agitation, decreased uh, responsiveness, et responsiveness, etc, etc a systolic blood pressure that's dropped, or a high respiratory rate. And in fact, if you look at the NEWS score, those three things are within the NEWS score, and there are four more things. So thankfully, I think the UK leads the world, dare I say on scoring and monitoring patients. And so we do seven things, but many countries around the world do zero things. And so QuickSOFA offers the three strongest pickup criteria, but in the UK we're doing that anyway with an extra four, and seven is more work but it will give you sort of stronger sort of recognition of a deteriorating patient. So I think the view is if you hit a new score of five or above, call for help. But even if it's not five and you're worried, call for somebody with more expertise.
2: I think that's one of the questions when we spoke to our teams before coming here to talk to you and said, oh, yeah, no, ask about QSOFA, but then also ask about the patients that have not got a high score in news Mm -hmm. but look terrible. Mm. Um, and their numbers kind of look okay, mm. and you've done, a, you've done a venous gas because we've got a little machine on T16, mm-hmm. we can check the lactate's okay. What should we be looking for in those patients? Yeah.
3: I think, again, when I, I teach um, junior docs and consultants, actually, as well, on um, I have uh, courses on medical emergencies, and my best sign of a sick patient is they look rough. And it's true. You walk into the room before you've clocked their respiratory rate or their blood pressure or anything, you think, God, they look ill. You know, they're not looking at you, the lips are downturned, the eyes are droopy, the eyelids are droopy, etc. That says, oh, they're not well. You know, they're not as responsive or bright-eyed as they used to be, you know, five hours ago. They're not well. And that, I get the nose twitch and think, hmm, I need to respond. But can we pick up things over and above physiology, new scores, to say, yeah, that patient with a new score of five is going to, or three or two or whatever is going to do badly? Because, as you say, rightly, you know, they don't look well. You pick,
2: it, you pick up on it's your clinical judgment and yeah. your experience that I'm not quite sure what the problem is, but there is a problem.
3: But you, you're, you're absolutely, sorry to interject, but you're absolutely right, but you use that magic word experience. And so, I'm not saying you're old, but you're older than somebody who's just their first month on the ward. Yeah, exactly. Or well, a junior doctor this, who's don't worry. Look look it out. Out. <laughs> Edit that one out. <laughs> But you are 25, you know. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, that's the problem. You've got a brand new junior doc, you know, who's just out of medical school or a brand new staff nurse, and they won't have the expertise that you'll have garnered from 10, 20 years of seeing these patients and thinking, hmm. And then knowing that that patient who looked rough then became rough, clinically rough uh, a few hours later.
2: We asked Titch as well the same type of question, didn't we, where... You know, we said, is it helpful in terms of PERT referrals where we... And I've done this myself where I've called and said, there isn't anything particular, but we're just going into a night shift. And Mm. I just want you to be aware of this patient. And Titch said, well, that isn't really helpful for us because we need to know about the patients that aren't well. But I suppose it's the anxiety of, you know, you are being worried about someone. I suppose it's then our job to just really regularly monitor. We were talking
1: before about if a patient's really sick it becomes much more clear what you need to do, I guess. Yeah. Whereas when you're kind of, the patient's got the potential where it becomes a little bit more like, well, do we need more fluid or do we need less? Or have I escalated as far as I need to to make sure this information gets passed on? And it's that that middle ground which can be tricky.
3: I'm slightly more um, supportive of your view because and I think whether or not you need the pertness or whether or not you need... You know, internally on the ward that you get a more senior nurse or the doc to come and have a look at the patient. Say so there's something not right about this patient.
2: I think making a plan together yeah. and
3: all Increase the monitoring yeah. frequency. Absolutely. You know, because you know, in your experience, tells you, you know, it might be that they're just feeling rough and nauseated, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and give them a few hours and some antiemetic and they'll feel, and a bit of fluid, and they'll feel better. But on the other hand. Your experience tells you, yeah, but I've seen enough of these patients who go on to deteriorate. So it's usually a prodrome where they look rough before they physiologically become rough. And again, if you pick those patients up and you're keeping a closer eye on them, you know, I think it's personally to the patient's benefit. As a useful tool for kind of trying to pick out the sicker patients versus
1: the less sick, what is the sort of feeling with with lactate and the sort of
3: relationship with sepsis and outcomes? So lactate's oversold. Yeah. So the problem about lactate, it's, it's in the blood, it's a level, but the body produces lactate and the body also utilizes lactate. So lactate, believe it or not, is a good guy. It's a fuel. And there's a lot of studies to show that in states of stress, uh, the muscle in particular pumps out lactate for other organs, the heart, the brain, kidney, gut, liver, to use as a fuel because when you're under stress, you're not eating, etc. And, and so lactate's actually a, a good guy in terms of helping the body cope with stress. And at a certain point in time, you know, because you might have a normal lactate, even though the production's very high, but the utilization matches the production. So the problem is, it's only when the production goes up really high that we can go, oh, look, the lactate's above normal, and then everyone runs around going, oh, lactate's high, lactate's high. But you can get to quite a sick patient before that lactate goes up. So on the one hand, having a high lactate should ring an alarm bell, but on the other hand, just because the lactate's normal doesn't mean you shouldn't worry. And that's the problem. I think, unfortunately, um, emergency departments have been sort of carried away with the hype that lactate is, you know, all seeing, all useful as a biomarker. And the fact that the patient looks rough but the lactate's normal gives them a false sense of se- security. So I-, I would argue, again, the lactate is confirmation that the patient's ill. But they look ill, but the lactate's normal. Still treat them as mm, you're worried.
2: Good to know. One of the other questions that one of our doctors wanted to know is how well do you think we manage fluid on the wards? I think we find that a lot of our patients that become unwell, we treat and then we resuscitate with fluid. They often end up needing to go to intensive care for then fluid management. And how much fluid should we be giving? Right.
3: Um, The glib answer is enough, but not too much. (laughs) Um, Fluid, I think, is a fluid management is I think a hugely challenging task especially on a ward you know the nice thing about intensive care we have more toys and gadgets and monitors that can help us but again we still get it wrong I'm not saying we're perfect either and so it is challenging you've got a patient where they might have because of their underlying condition they've got an inflammatory process and they're leaking out fluid or they've got rampant diarrhea or they're vomiting and assessing intravascular volume which is essentially the purpose initially of fluid resuscitation, can be really difficult. And so we give them fluid, but then the problem is they're not peeing, the blood pressure's still low, or the blood pressure's okay, but they're not peeing, so they get more fluid, and then more fluid. And sometimes they get drowned in fluid before the, the doctor thinks, oh, well, I've given them now too much. And then they bring intensive care. So there's this balancing act that, yes, I need to give fluid, Probably most patients will benefit from fluid in that situation, although not all. But then how do I know I've given enough and not too much? So my way of doing it is rather than just giving huge amounts of fluid, it's much better to give a challenge quickly, you know, 250 mils over 10 minutes, and then come back and review them. And then have they responded? So there are the clues symptomatically. You know, I think thirst is a good marker of if you're intravascularly dry. So if the patient's able to say, it's not just a dry mouth, but yes, I'm really thirsty. Again, that's a marker. Postural drop. So you can stimulate your different reflexes. So if you sit the patient up and there's a big drop in blood pressure, again, that's suggestive that they're hypovolemic. Or if they're able to, you know, lie them flat and lift their legs up and see if their heart rate comes down and their blood pressure comes up.
1: And can you only do, or, or would you be doing, thinking about these things in a hypertensive patient or in a patient who might not yet be
3: hypertensive? Oh, all of them, because, all, again, okay, yeah. um, a young, fit person can drop 30 40% of their circulating volume before their blood pressure drops. But you can accentuate this by sitting them up. You know, and I'm sure you guys see when you get them out of bed and then they fall in a heap, then you think, ah, maybe they need a bit of fluid. So that dynamic challenge, sitting them up to get them out of bed, Is a good way of identifying to you, that patient might do with some fluid, whereas sitting comfortably in bed, unstressed, doesn't manifest that physiological derangement. So it's that sense of, okay, you know, the skin turgor, they're not passing much urine, they're a bit cool and shut down, they have a postural drop, or if you can lie them flat, lift the legs up and see the physiological response. You can get clues from that. And then if you feel, right, a fluid challenge is appropriate, let's challenge them and then review the patient. So if you're worried enough to feel, hmm, they might be empty, I need to give them fluid, then I think it's incumbent on the nurse, the doctor, whoever, to then go and re-review them and check that have the abnormal parameters corrected themselves. Mm. And if not, then the question is, do they still clinically, physiologically need more fluid? Or no, I've given enough. Now, perhaps, you know, they need nine or vasopressor or some other non-fluid therapy. Okay. It's easy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but essentially, it's physiology. Yeah. Which it's, is... it's
2: good to know there's a couple of different things that we can do because yeah. I think that's the worry, isn't it? Being yeah. on a ward and it might be Saturday afternoon or the middle of the night yeah. and you want to be able to do as many interventions possible to prevent something from getting worse. Yeah.
3: yeah challenge, challenge the circulation.
2: We do more challenges now. Yeah. I feel rather than yeah. giving big liters of fluid and then lots of maintenance fluid, and then you know you then come to the no morning, idea where you are. Yeah. no idea where you yeah. are, and you've you know your your fluid balance is four liters yeah. over, and then you've got a bit of a problem then because then you have to offload, um, and then it's you know up oh, and down.
3: completely. When when I was a lad <laughs> uh, a few years ago, right, years ago, um, you know patients routinely either came to us or we did it ourselves. They you know looked like Michelin men you know, because they got huge amounts of fluid and they, with their leaky capillaries, they got massive degrees of peripheral edema. And I remember as a junior doctor challenging the logic of doing this to our patients. And I was told, oh, don't worry about it, boy, it's just all cosmetic. When they get better, it goes away. And I thought, well, hang on a a minute, minute. the oxygen's got to get through these waterlogged lungs and tissues and kidneys. And Again, the evidence now is showing that patient doesn't benefit from that. And so certainly in intensive care, there's a much bigger move to what's called de-resuscitate them. So you might need to make them fluid positive at the beginning when you need to resuscitate them. They've come in dry from their vomiting, diarrhea, fluid shifts, whatever. But once you've got them stabilized, then you've got to think about keeping them fluid, balanced, neutral or even negative. And I think a problem you guys have in hematology is with the amount of drugs, you know, blood product replacement, etc. You know, you're giving them one, two liters, even more a day mm. of you know nasty before fluid. Before they drink anything, yeah, yeah, before
2: they've had before anything before they've to had drink. any
3: nutrition, absolutely. Mm. And so you're you're making them hugely fluid positive. So I think we create our monsters, you yeah, know, Frankenstein. <laughs> cool. Great. Thank you very much. That's so good, thank you. I think, good, I think we've you. covered a good, really good amount. You're welcome. Who do I ask in the bill to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gavin. You have the budget head <laughs> down? Yeah.
2: Done? yeah